Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, April 27, 2017. I am your host, Scott Bland, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. Well, the past few weeks have had a what's new is old feel to them with all this special election talk over and over again. Well, this week, House Republicans' health care bill is back, seemingly from the dead. And that's what we're going to talk about first. We're going to dive into what's new about this proposal, whether it can attract enough support from members in battleground districts, and even how one member's foot surgery could impact things going forward. That's not the only policy making big news this week. The White House also released very broad outlines of a tax reform proposal just inside Trump's 100-day mark of his administration. We'll talk more about that, too. And we'll also talk about the argument the Democratic Party has been having with itself this week about just how big their party's tent should be on the complicated and divisive issue of abortion. A couple quick housekeeping notes before we get started here. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Rate us and write a written review. The more reviews and feedback we get, the higher we rise on the charts and the easier it is for more people to discover us. So please help us create Nerdcast Nation and subscribe, rate, and write a written review. And one more thing, we've created a survey to better get to know our listeners and create an even better show. So listeners, please take two minutes of your time, fill out a quick survey at politico.com slash podcast survey. That's politico.com slash podcast survey. All right, let's bring in this week's Nerdcasters. We have senior reporter Nancy Cook. Thanks for having me. National political reporter Eliana Johnson returns after a, a couple weeks off from the Nerdcast. Yes, some, somewhat wounded that it survived without my presence. And we have national political reporter Gabe Benedetti in the studio as well. I'm also back, but I guess that's not as big a deal. <laughs> nope, nobody's excited about that. <laughs> Yeah, let's just move on. Our first data point, 33, the health care bill is back. 33 days after President Donald Trump said he was content to just wait for Obamacare to, quote, explode and force Democrats to the table on health care. Two wings of the House Republican conference say they've arrived at a deal on a new Obamacare repeal and replace bill that they say could actually pass the House this time. Just before the 100-day mark of the Trump administration, a total coincidence, we are sure. So, Nancy, start us off here. A month ago, President Trump made this take-it-or-leave-it ultimatum to the House GOP about the original bill, and they left it. So what's changed? So basically, they picked it back up. You know, Vice President Pence has been very involved in trying to get this uh, through. And what this actually does is this gives more goodies to far-right conservatives and members of the Freedom Caucus than the past one did. Um, But it also risks alienating House uh, moderates. And it definitely won't fly as is in the Senate. The senators, Republican senators, are already expressing some concerns about it. So some of the major things that it does just policy-wise is it just changes the requirements requirements for what insurers have to cover at the state level. So it allows states to opt out of certain parts of Obamacare. And it would potentially mean that you wouldn't have to cover people or you could charge much larger premiums to people with pre-existing conditions, which is quite a big thing. You know, before Obamacare, sick people
people had to pay a lot more for insurance and usually had skimpier coverage. So that could come back again. And then the other thing that uh, is also on the table is this idea of, you know, Obamacare said that there were 10 essential health benefits that had insurers had to cover. And states uh, under this current house plan could also opt out of that. And that includes everything from emergency room care to prescription drugs to, uh, you know, care for newborns, um, pregnancy coverage, maternal care. And so it's like a whole range of things that um, is usually expensive things that cover a wide array of people. So it's basically going to let states opt out of a lot of these things. What's the political upshot of this? I mean, you said there, there's uh, you know, conservative groups that were opposing the bill before. Now with this new amendment are uh, are coming on board. Uh, Eliana, inside the House Republican conference, how, how is this playing out? It, it's it's attracted, like Nancy said, a lot of support from conservatives. But as we saw last time, you know, every action has a reaction on the other side of the conference with this with this bill. Yeah, I think this bill has a, a narrow path through the House Republican conference, but a far higher chance of passing than did the previous bill. One significant uh, thing that I think we're seeing here is the White House take the lead on crafting the legislation, which they did not do. They sat back for two weeks while House Speaker Paul Ryan um, was out on a limb with a pretty unpopular bill. And I think you saw the White House take the lead here and ask various constituencies in the House, what do we need to do to get a bill that could pass? Um, the last time around, House Speaker Paul Ryan put out a bill without consulting with uh, the various constituencies in his conference. Many of them hadn't seen the bill before it came out. That was not how um, how this went along. And it, we should note this is the old bill with an amendment onto it that is garnering support um, from people who had opposed the, the previous bill. But the White House taking the lead on this and trying to uh, get extra support for it is significant and it is consistent with what they're doing on the tax plan, um, taking the lead. So I think you're seeing a shift in the dynamics here where the White House is taking the lead on legislative issues. And for the first time sort of at, at the 100-day mark, you're seeing what the Trump agenda is looks like. Normally, you'd see this right out of the gate from a White House. But with the Trump White House, uh, we're, we're seeing this sort of a, a little more than three months in. And it's significant. I think it's good for Trump. And it's going to uh, increase the chances that he sees bills begin to pass through Congress. Politically speaking, I think we're also seeing, though, a lot of the members who have been tagged as on the moderate side of this debate, but many of whom are more vulnerable, are going to really be squeezed by this, partly because it's being pushed by the White House and they want to be on the White House's good side, but also because Democrats feel like they're really on offense on this issue. Uh, if you look at the lessons that they learned from the last time they had this fight just a few weeks ago, they started to spend a lot of money on ads. They saw how terrible this was polling. And there are some anecdotes of some members on the Republican side more or less saying this is going to be really tough for me to get through you know, in my own district. These are particularly people who live in blue states or in even in red states but districts that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. Democrats are going to spend a lot of money saying, uh, you know, these guys are trying to get rid of your Obamacare, which of course is a message that polls well. But in particular, one provision that they've been really drilling in on right now is the one where uh, House members are more or less exempting themselves uh, from this plan and, and Democrats are more or less saying, great, this is a perfect talking point for our ads. Uh, good luck in 2018. Yeah, Paul Ryan, Speaker Paul Ryan has moved to sort of strike that, but just the public relations messaging around the idea that they're going to let states like strip out all of these things that insurance companies have to cover and potentially charge people, sick people much more, but that that's not going to apply to members of Congress. That was just a, a disaster uh, public relations move early on. 
Um, but I also think just in terms of the Trump agenda, what Eliana was saying about how this, uh, you know, shows us some of what he's going to do legislatively. I do think there are some political risks there as well, because Trump, for instance, on the campaign trail said that, you know, he wouldn't uh, charge sick people more. They wouldn't get rid of the pre-existing condition thing. Are you going to make sure that people with pre-conditions are still covered? Yes, because it happens to be one of the strongest assets. You're going to keep Very that. much try and keep that and that was a whole idea that, you know, he was going to be sort of a different type of Republican. Um, you know, conservatives are cheering that they that this would really move to shrink the size of the federal government and make the federal government less involved in health insurance, which is something that Republicans have long wanted. I think the concern for Trump is that's not necessarily what he said on the campaign trail. And, you know, he changes his mind and says a lot of things all the time and, you know, goes back and forth. But this is something that he really stuck with. And it seems like that's potentially changing. Eliana, what's the timing? in terms of all this? I mean, there have been kind of wild rumors floating around for the last week or two. There's been talk of a vote later this week. There's been talk of a vote next week. When, you know, members just got back from a long recess, as, as I think we mentioned. So what... what I think what you're going to see is that there's no concrete timing. Um, I think what you're going to see is as soon as um, Speaker Ryan thinks that he has 218 members on board for a vote, they'll vote. And that can happen um, as soon as this weekend. But they're not going to go out on a limb and say that they're going to vote on this um, on a particular day. But as soon as he feels like he's got the numbers, they'll they'll vote as soon as possible. And this is a bill, you know, I think Ryan came out with a compromise bill last time that looked much less conservative than his conference wanted. Um, I think this time you're going to see a more conservative bill that the Senate will change because uh, you need something much more moderate to pass the Senate. And I think that's more consistent with what conservatives thought. They thought Ryan would put out a purist bill and that the Senate would make compromise to it and they would let House Republicans complain about that, but that you would not see uh, Paul Ryan's opening bid be something that looked like he had negotiated with himself. He would be doing, you know, negotiating with Mitch McConnell and, and Senate Republicans uh, right out of the gate. And meanwhile, Gabe, the, while this conservative bill is out there, we're seeing Democratic groups, like you alluded to, uh, already trying to kind of take advantage of what's in it may not be what's in the final product, but right. it's what's in it now with big digital ad campaigns and House districts and Senate districts, uh, Senate states. Right. Well, I think what a lot of what they are playing on is this broader fear that some Republicans still have uh, and they're trying to expose this that – Everyone is settling into the political reality here that if we are going to have this healthcare fight, if we're going to make this push now as Trump and as Ryan have been promising for such a long time, it's going to be a long, messy fight because as we've alluded to, this has to go through the Senate and then back through the House and it's going to be messy. What a lot of folks have said to me and, and I've we've all written this before is we've seen we've seen this show before where a White House trying to make radical change, trying to overhaul the healthcare system in a comprehensive way, tries to do this early on in their presidency, and it turns into a long, messy fight that turns into an electoral problem for them. So Democrats are basically trying to set the stage right now and say, if you think this is going to go easily, we may be in the minority, but you're wrong. And Republicans are more or less settling in for a long fight too, because what they're saying is, listen, we know that we tried. We know that we failed already. The electoral political reality of this is that that looks pretty bad if you say we've been campaigning to repeal Obamacare for eight years, for 10 years. Uh, they can't just give up on it now. 
One thing, and, and I don't know this, I'm curious if you all do, but um, one thing that I'm curious about is when do those changes to the potential policies take effect for the insurance companies? Because I feel like that will be very key because if they don't take effect, you know, some in the first bill, for instance, like some things didn't take effect till 2018 or 2020. You know, if this takes effect before the midterms, then Democrats have ammo to say, oh, look, you know, the Republicans are charging sick people more for their insurance. But if it doesn't actually go into effect till then, um, you know, that could be a problem for Democrats. Absolutely. And that's why I think the short-term fight is a lot more about the messaging rather than the actual policy. They're basically just saying they're trying to take away your Obamacare because they know for the first time the, the phrase Obamacare is popular. But I think for voters, it's going to sink in when, you know, you have, let's say, diabetes or you've had sure. breast cancer and suddenly your premiums, you know, if this bill passes as is, um, which is unlikely, but if there's some measure towards this, you know, your premiums skyrocket, that's when I feel like people really understand the stakes. I wonder, though, I mean, the Democrats paid a heavy price for Obamacare in the 2010 elections long before anything was actually implemented. That's true. So um, one one kind of amusing note that I've thought about that we're talking – we've talked a lot about the – Well, I think just – sorry, just to jump on your point there. Um, the Democrats – I think the Democrats paid a price for passing Obamacare because – People with health care in particular, they fear change and disruption. That's the same reason that the repeal of Obamacare um, is unpopular right now. Um, it doesn't have anything to do really with people liking Obamacare, um, but it's precisely the same thing that made the passage of it unpopular that's making its repeal unpopular right now. That's such a good point. Yeah, it's, it's been – I mean it's been the biggest dynamic that's made change to the health care system difficult um, and then one of the things I think that makes tax reform tremendously difficult as well. Well, let's let's jump into tax reform right now. Actually, one, actually, one last thing I just oh, want to mention. Oh, good one. Good, before... good transition <laughs> oh, plan. But I can't, I can't get out of this without mentioning just – we spent a lot of time last month talking about the arithmetic in the House for just like – there's 22 votes, basically a cushion. And since then, we've actually seen another Republican member of Congress elected in a special election out of Kansas, Ron Estes. And so you would think that would give them just a little bit more room to work with. But as it so happens, Congressman Jason Chaffetz uh, is having foot surgery, I guess, and is going to be out of the House for like a month. And so we're we're right back to where we started. It's just one of those things. I, I thought it was pretty funny about just how the, how the arithmetic of these things adds up. But like I said, I'm not going to ruin a good segue. So let's move uh, right into segment two. Eliana mentioned tax reform. And our data point uh, for that segment is 15%. And that's the business tax rate in the big uh, cut reform proposal, not really a proposal, more like principles uh, that the White House unveiled Wednesday as they try to get the ball rolling on another major legislative priority for 2017. Uh, once again, I'm sure just a coincidence that it was right before the 100-day mark of the Trump administration. So, Eliana, obviously, healthcare has been an enormous animating policy issue for the Republican Party for the last seven years since Obamacare passed, but tax reform has been a big goal for even longer. What's the state of play within the Republican Party as uh, things kind of kick off in this effort? So I think what we saw from the White House yesterday, many people have been calling it a tax plan, but it's actually best understood as a set of guiding principles for um, a tax bill that will eventually be written. It's a one-page one sheet that has bullet points on it that are intended to guide the crafting of that bill, calling for um, an enormous reduction in the tax rate for businesses from uh, the, their current rate of 35 percent to 15 percent, a lowering of individual tax rates and a bigger tax deduction for middle-income households and a repeal entirely of the estate tax and the alternative minimum tax, which is normally done uh, year to year by presidents. We've seen that since uh, the Bush administration really 
what we don't see here is how uh, the White House intends to accomplish this big reduction in tax rates without blowing a hole in the deficit. Um, House Speaker Paul Ryan had indicated he wanted to do that by implementing a border adjustment tax. And he didn't do that because he was an enormous fan of the border adjustment tax, but because he was conscious of not increasing the deficit enormously, which can have uh, other economic repercussions. But the White House didn't seem to propose any way of increasing revenues while decreasing taxes. So it'll be interesting to see when the bill is actually crafted how the House and how Republican leaders make up for that. Nancy? Well, I just think we should also talk just a little bit about the backstory of how this these tax principles came together. I mean, basically, President Trump last Friday made an appearance at the Treasury Department. And in a surprise to officials at the Treasury Department and also a bunch of White House people, he said, we're going to unveil a tax plan on Wednesday. And we'll be having a big announcement on Wednesday having to do with tax reform. And, you know, I did quite a lot of reporting earlier this week on the machinations of how they put this one-page document together. And it was literally changing by the hour, um, you know, what we were hearing from different people in the White House, at the Treasury Department, just, you know, different sources who were briefed on the plan. It was changing kind of day to day. And there was this frantic scramble to get it together. And really, it was because I think President Trump wanted to change uh, the narrative a little bit and move it away from these stories about what he did during his 100 days to suddenly, you know, he's proposing the largest tax cut in history. And so while I think it's, you know, interesting that the White House is kind of leading on this effort, as Eliana talked about earlier, um, and as they're leading on healthcare, you know, this was really put together in totally a slapdash way. And, you know, there's no details. And I feel like internally, even at the White House, there's not even, you know, this has no sense of how they're going to pay for those deep rate cuts. And I feel like that was, a, you know, an ongoing discussion that the White House hadn't even come to grips with about whether or not they should care about the deficit. Eliana, r- real quick, I, I want to throw it to you in a second, actually, for uh, I'm very curious about Democratic reaction to this. But, but be quiet. <laughs> but uh, Eliana, I just, I just want to uh, follow up really quickly on what Nancy said. I mean, you've talked about this a number of times. Donald Trump is not is the first Republican president in a while who's not a movement conservative. And these tax principles reflect that entirely, right? Uh, They do when they don't. I mean, he's going out and saying this is the biggest tax cut ever, which is something that conservatives and Republicans like. But um, a consciousness of the deficit is also, you know, deficit hawks are also part of the conservative movement. And um, Richard Shelby, for example, um, the Alabama senator came out yesterday and said that he would remain wary until he saw how much this uh, this bill would cost when it's written and how it would be paid for. And he told the Wall Street Journal that if it's not paid for, we're going to run a huge deficit and we don't want to do that. Um, so, you know, that I think that's hugely interesting. And I think when this bill is written, we're going to see how much power that deficit hawks actually have in the Republican Party and if Trump um, is able to elbow them out or reduce their power in the party and the movement. That's a great point. Nancy, there was something you wanted to say? Well, just one quick data point to add to that. You know, the Tax Policy Center, the Tax Policy Center, which is this nonpartisan group in Washington, modeled the Trump campaign plan. Um, and they they showed that if Trump did just the 15 percent business tax cut and just got rid of the corporate alternative minimum tax, that alone would add $3.5 trillion to the deficit in 10 years. And that's just one tiny piece of the plan. Wow. So, Gabe, like 
Eliana was just saying, I mean, tax cuts broadly are a popular thing. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about how Democratic opposition to Trump has been pretty much uniform on just about everything. What has the Democratic reaction to these proposals been? Has there been any interest in in some of this? So yes and no. I mean, what what just happened actually was a little bit of a microcosm of the last day with, with, with regards to this tax reform because Democrats have sort of, they've weighed in, but they've been very content to sit back and let them and let Republicans fight this one out on their own for now. The White House and Republicans on the Hill thought that tax reform, if they had gotten health care through first, would be a place where they could bring Democrats to the table, try and talk about this because it is broadly popular. But what we've seen, particularly because Democrats have felt like they've been winning on a lot of these issues, even if it's pure loss mitigation, um, is total resistance. They're saying, listen, we like the idea of tax cuts and whatnot. But like I just brought up uh, the statement yesterday from from Senator Gillibrand of New York. And what she said is, uh, you know, this all sounds nice, but it's it, this fails all the tests. Uh, this administration proposes massive tax cuts to profitable multinational companies. And that is the line that everyone is saying. This is just a massive corporate tax cut. Why would we play along with this? Much like the uh, proposed or, or theoretically proposed infrastructure package that we still haven't seen, this is an issue where Republicans in the White House on the Hill say, listen, we can get Democrats to our side. But there's no Democrat that really faces a lot of pressure to do this, even those running in red states, because they don't think this is going to come to the table anytime soon. Well, that's a really interesting point because we've seen we, – we know what Trump's national polling numbers look like right now. We don't – they're not good. They're kind of in the low 40s. We don't really know what he's like in these states, but we have hints that he is, remains popular in states like Montana, where Senator John Tester is running for re-election, right? The, there's a special election for the House going on right there, and the Republican candidate has specifically said he wants it to be a referendum on Donald Trump. You, and he's been doing polling, right? You mm-hmm. don't say that unless you, you, you've you seen numbers that make you comfortable about that. Yeah, but part of what's important to remember is that in a lot of these states, especially on the Senate side, you know, John Tester doesn't have a real opponent yet. He has people who are talking about running against him, but he doesn't have to run against Donald Trump right now. He just has to be John Tester. Uh, Similar things are happening in West Virginia, in North Dakota, where there are a lot of these folks who are being talked about as pretty vulnerable, but it's very easy for them to just say, I I don't want to deal with this tax plan if it's just going to be a huge tax cuts for corporations. As we saw from the last election, that kind of uh, that kind of messaging actually works pretty well. That said, they are wary about this. There's obviously a huge possibility that that Republicans could really pin them down here. But as we've all alluded to now, this sort of feels like it was something that was put forth because the administration wanted to have this, uh, you know, they wanted to be able to promote this as part of their first 100 days. No one is really expecting that they're going to have to vote on this anytime soon. Yeah. And even the administration has really moved on that time frame. You know, Secretary of the Treasury Steve Mnuchin said a while back that they were going to have a tax plan, you know, signed, sealed and delivered by August. And that has steadily, you know, that date has steadily crept now into, um, I think, fiscal year 2018 is more what White House people are saying. Um, but just on bringing the Democrats to the table, you know, it was interesting leading up to what they actually released. There was discussion internally at Treasury and the White House over, you know, should that be part of the plan? And for a little while, like 12 hours, there was a thought that they would potentially include, you know, some infrastructure in there to bring Democrats to the table. And also Ivanka's child care tax credit, there's sort of a nod to that or child care plan. We don't know if it's a tax credit or a deduction, but you know, there's some sense that maybe that could help bring Democrats to the table. But I I think for Democrats, it does open the question, you know, they can keep 
harping on this line that the problem with tax reform is that you don't have any idea how it would benefit Trump himself because he refuses to release his tax returns. And we saw a lot of reporters, uh, you know, ask that question of Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and the NEC director Gary Cohen when they unveiled the plan yesterday. And I expect that to continue to be something that uh, Democrats harp on. That said, this whole issue does really illustrate something that a lot of Democrats, especially those who were up in 2018, are very nervous about. They won't say it out loud, but a lot of them are waiting for the moment in which they're actually going to be squeezed by the White House and by Republicans because there have been issue after issue where they feel like they've actually gotten a pass because Trump is broadly uh, unpopular. They don't have opponents yet. They feel like they're on the march. But at some point, the, rea- the reality is their grassroots, their their base in most of these places is saying you have to resist no matter what. And the White House has immense power, especially since Republicans have control of all of, the, all of D.C. essentially, to really squeeze these folks. And if they do propose an infrastructure package that does look popular to voters in these states, Democrats know they're going to be squeezed. So they're really trying to get as much as they can out of this right now essentially knowing that they get a free ride of saying we're not going to vote for this because they're not going to have to vote for this for a while. I mean one of the things we've talked about is I think Republicans and conservatives broadly, they expected Trump to come into office and try to push a billion-dollar infrastructure package. Steve Bannon indicated that he was pushing for that during the transition. And conservatives and Republicans, I I think they wanted to give Trump for the first six months of his presidency pretty wide latitude. An infrastructure package obviously would diverge from conservative principles, but they were pretty ready to do that. And – I think people pretty broadly are befuddled as to how that didn't happen right out of the gate. And instead, he um, he went with a travel ban and health care, which were much more difficult and, and – Much uh, more divisive. Much more divisive, um, absolutely. But it is somewhat puzzling how infrastructure got pushed off um, sort of indefinitely. We don't know if or when it's going to happen, but that would have really um, that would have really pushed Democrats uh, you yeah. know, up against the wall. Absolutely. And I think few people have been more surprised by that than Chuck Schumer, who essentially <laughs> said, you know, he entered his role as minority leader, more or less saying, you know, if they do, he didn't say this out loud, obviously, but people in his world suggested it. If they do infrastructure, we have to come to the table. We don't get to not work with them. Now, Things have changed dramatically in the last 100 days, last 100 plus days. There hasn't been any talk about that kind of thing. So Democrats say, fine, we're just going to say no to everything. Worked for you guys. Nancy, Gabe just mentioned the 100 days. I want we, We've mentioned that here and there in the last couple segments. But I just want this, – this deadline is coming up. Um, the Trump administration keeps saying publicly they don't care about it and then privately doing everything they can to indicate that they really, really do care about it. How much – how much is the, is that kind of fight for accomplishment to rack up accomplishments playing into what we've seen in the past week on healthcare, on tax reform, on other policies that uh, that Republicans want to get done? I mean, I think that's driving the whole thing. I think that you know they wanted healthcare revived this week. You know, Trump unveiled a tax plan on Wednesday. That was a scramble. Uh, you know, he's been having his schedule is totally packed this week. You know, calls with foreign leaders, like photo ops with a female astronaut, um, you know, signing an executive order at the Interior Department. Um, one White House official that I talked to uh, last week said that they had a bunch of executive orders basically in the can that they were, you know, that they'd had in the can for a while and that they were, you know, going to release them this week as kind of a show of 
what they would be able to do. And so I think that, uh, you know, there was a lot of concern and anxiety about this week. But I actually think they've done a really good job of kind of changing the narrative. I mean, I feel like if they hadn't had this busy week or unveiled this tax one-page document, there would have been a lot more stories about the fact that healthcare didn't get done and the executive orders are pretty much largely meaningless except for the travel ban, which has been blocked in court. I mean, really the most prominent thing they've done, which I would argue is actually huge and very long lasting is pick a Supreme Court justice. But that's been like their lone big accomplishment. And I feel like by having such a busy week, though, they've kind of changed the conversation surrounding that. Yeah. And in some ways, Democrats actually feel like they've always they've almost been played in some ways, like when they were when all the senators were summoned to the White House for the North Korea briefing yesterday or this week. Um, you know, some of them were essentially saying, this is a photo op. Why would we agree to do this? Why would we get in these the, these buses, demean ourselves, schlep over to Pennsylvania Avenue for a picture essentially at, when we don't learn anything and then have to go back to Capitol Hill? So they say, yeah, there are all these image things that the, he's a master marketer, right? That's That's what they're saying. Let's move to our final data point this week. And the number for that is 181. So over the last week, there's been a big flap inside the Democratic Party about, of all things, the mayoral race in Omaha, Nebraska. The Democratic candidate there, Heath Mello, took some votes in the state legislature that abortion rights advocates have criticized vociferously. DNC chair Tom Perez ended up saying that there was no place for abortion opponents in the party, while Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi advocated more of a big tent. But back to our data point. 181 was the number that we looked up. It was the number of House members that NARAL Pro-Choice America, an advocacy group, identified as, quote, fully pro-choice in 2010, which was essentially the modern height of Democratic power in Washington uh, when they had those big majorities in the Senate, in the House, all those governorships, Obama, they were pushing Obamacare, all that legislation. But 181 is not anything close to a majority of what you need if you want to control the House of Representatives. So, Gabe, that was a very lengthy introduction, but as you know, it's also kind of the Cliff's Notes version of just what happened in the last week in Nebraska and beyond. So can you fill in some of the details of, of this big flap? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and as as we all expected, the, the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party was going to come down to the mayoral race in Omaha. Um, <laughs> is, so there's a big backstory here, which is that Tom Perez, the new DNC chairman, and Bernie Sanders have been on this unity tour through these red states. They've been appearing with candidates, talking about how great each other are, basically trying to tell everyone, look, everything's OK. We all love each other. Republicans are terrible, right? But they're really happy to have all of the focus be on Donald Trump right now because the reality is that this has not gone all that well. So specifically with this guy Mello, the Omaha mayoral candidate, Perez was not actually at this stop in the unity tour. But it was the DNC tour and Sanders stood up there and endorsed the guy, spoke with him. Keith Ellison, the deputy chair of the DNC, was actually with him. And what happened was Narrow, which you, which you alluded to, came out and said, why are we supporting under the DNC banner this guy who has in the past espoused these anti-abortion views? Perez felt very pressured by this, came out and said more or less the Democratic Party is a pro-choice party and that's that's that. Then Nancy Pelosi came back and said, actually, that's not necessarily the case. We're a big tent party. And let's let's roll the tape on that quote from Nancy Pelosi right here from Meet the Press. Can you be a Democrat if you're pro-life? Of course. of course. I have served for many years in Congress with members who have not shared my aggressive position on promoting a woman's right to choose. 
So Chuck Schumer said something similar uh, afterwards, and other folks have actually said this too, and Perez has subtly tried to dial it back. But what this has done is expose this major question of whether the Democratic Party should be a big tent party or not. The reality is this was a big unforced error on the Democratic Party's side. They didn't need to be having this debate right now. There was sort of a consensus that the Democratic Party is a pro-choice party, but they're not going to demand that purity from uh, every single candidate who's running, particularly in some of these red states. But that's where we are now. They're having this existential debate all over again. Eliana, there are a lot of parallels here to what happened in Republican primaries in 2009 and, and 2010, right? At the, as the Tea Party was building itself up and Republicans were trying to figure out exactly what they wanted to be and what they wanted to put forward in the Obama years, right? I actually think there are parallels um, to what happened with Trump, too, who wanted to turn the party really into into a platform for economic nationalists. And Sanders is essentially saying that he wants to turn the Democratic Party into a party um, that promotes economic nationalism and, and redistribution. And he doesn't care about the other issues. Um, he wants to be a big tent party. And that's that's uh, much of what Trump said. He wanted to do away with, uh, with conservative doctrine on a lot of things. And he said, uh, this is a Republican Party, not the conservative party. And Sanders and Trump were similar in so many ways and agreed on many issues. Um, and I I was doing uh, Meet the Press Daily yesterday and Neera Tandon made, made this point um, of the Center for American Progress that, you know, activists want to be a big tent party except for on the issues that they're passionate about. And I think you're, you saw this play out um, both with Trump and with Sanders in the primaries this year. And what and one of the reasons that I think that I called this an unforced error earlier is because this is turning into this broad question about a big tent versus small tent party. But that in reality is not what this fight was about uh, in the moment because, of course, Bernie Sanders is, is a pro-choice person. He's not saying the Democratic Party has to be a bigger tent party. No one is disagreeing with that necessarily. The the, the substance of the actual disagreement is that Bernie Sanders and, and a lot of people associated with him don't necessarily see the abortion question specifically as an economic issue. And that is what a lot of people in the narrow world really had a big problem with. They said these are not separate issues. Yeah. And Elise Hogue, who is you know the head of NARAL, who's you know, an activist and and came from Move On. So she has like more of a political background than just like a reproductive rights background. You know, she went completely bonkers on this, as did a lot of, uh, you know, abortion advocates who basically said, look, you know, these things are closely aligned because, you know, women can't sort of have total economic freedom or be able to achieve their full economic potential unless they're sort of able to control when they have children. And the Democrats totally foolishly just risked alienating sort of deep pocketed donors, uh, you know, who are very animated by this issue women broadly who are pro-choice. And if you think about, you know, some of the biggest resistance to Trump and the Women's March, like that was organized by women. Why Democrats would potentially piss off pro-choice women at this moment is beyond me. Well, so the thing I've been wondering about that, though, I thought Pelosi's comments here were very interesting and particularly her, um, also Chuck Schumer, but Pelosi in particular, contrasting to Tom Perez, who has only ever been a county level elected official. And Nancy Pelosi has built and then went on to lose in very dramatic fashion a House majority, as as we alluded to in the data point, those 181, her majority was built uh, on uh, moderate, uh, at least what, what abortion rights advocates would call mixed choice, if not totally anti-abortion Democrats who were elected in rural areas in the South and 
in, in actually in some yeah. suburban districts too. Absolutely. And I think one thing that's important to remember is the role of DNC chair is not to be a policy uh, expert or even person at all. I mean, he's not supposed to be the person dictating the Democratic Party's policy. His job is to win elections. And I think that's sort of what you saw from uh, people like Pelosi and, and Schumer as well saying, let's not pretend that this is something that it isn't here. And I think one thing that's actually very instructive is looking at how other major figures in the party reacted to this whole thing. If you look at how Elizabeth Warren, for example, talked about this, she's on her book tour. She's getting her name out there a lot. She was talking to Jake Tapper on CNN recently and he said, what do you make of all this? And she said, I'm obviously pro-choice. The reality is that there are plenty of people in my in my party who aren't. This is not like the front and center issue here. I we, are, we have all these fights to fight right now. We can fight that fight. We can fight these other fights. This is – why are we doing this to ourselves more or less? The other thing is I think particularly in the Trump era, who are the people that the Democrats need to woo back into their coalition? Many of them are uh, more socially conservative um, white Catholic voters um, who went overwhelmingly for Trump, but who for a lot of reasons are naturally Democratic voters. Um, They're the last people that the Democrats um, need to be alienating ahead of a midterm election. And I just think, you know, broadly to say that like the abortion question and Roe v. Wade isn't sort of a central issue politically is a little foolish. I mean, conservatives felt very uncomfortable with Trump uh, based on his you know, comments about Roe v. Wade and abortion during the campaign. And only when he released this list of you know, 21 Supreme Court justices that he would pick and picked Vice President Mike Pence did a lot of people kind of get on board and then feel OK about that choice. And it is specifically an electoral question that made a lot of the Democrats really cringe about this because this isn't, this isn't in the abstract. There's a reason that they were doing this tour, Sanders and Perez, through these red states because that that is the path back for Democrats in a lot of these places. But if you look at 2018 itself, I think that we're going to get a lot more eyes all of a sudden on the Pennsylvania Senate race because Bob Casey is an anti-abortion Democrat, more or less pro-life. Um, and he is running in a purple state that Trump won and he's going to have to win over a lot of these voters. Re- Republicans would argue that Casey is anti-abortion in, in name only, that he's shifted a lot from from where his positioning once was. But but it, it doesn't Absolutely. erase the fact that when Chuck Schumer kind of recruited him as chair of the DSCC in 2006 to run for Senate, there was a big outcry and from uh, abortion rights groups. And, and yet he ended, up, he ended up winning his primary, he ended up winning the general and here he is a two-term and there's almost no other situation in which we would be talking about Bob Casey right now unless this was an issue and that's the problem. Gabe, you've, you've written uh, in the past week about how Trump is essentially uh, – the, the, the sheer power of Trump and Democrats' hatred uh, of him is papering over enormous, uh, enormous cracks within the Democratic Party right now. And it strikes me that what happened in the past week is an instance of, of these cracks briefly – uh, emerging above this light and noise generated by the resistance, right. and it will recede again, but it will continue to pop back up in, in potentially in more and more serious ways. Right, and there's no de- there's no reason to believe it. Uh, we should not pretend that these debates are not actually happening behind closed doors. This is just an example of them popping into the open. But let's look, for example, at some of the recent congressional special elections. They're actually very instructive. If the broader question in the party is what role should Sanders-style unapologetic economic populism run the party versus be part of it, uh, we need to look no further than, for example, the Kansas race, uh, but also the one that's brewing now in Montana and even the Georgia one. In Georgia, Bernie Sanders essentially lost every single precinct in that that district when during the primary he was running against Hillary Clinton there. John Ossoff, the candidate, has been more or less running away from Bernie Sanders. He won't say it explicitly. But in Kansas, 
Kansas, of all places, a very red place, a very red district. Jim Thompson was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Uh, and in Montana is the most interesting one. Bernie will actually be going out to Montana to campaign for Rob Quist, who was a big Bernie Sanders supporter, but who at the same time features in his ads him shooting television screens. I mean, this is a this is what it looks like to be a Montana Democrat, perhaps, but that's the definition of a big tent. Mm-hmm. And we can play one of the Quist ads right here. It's a very populist thing, but at the same time, it's kind of going against the Democratic Party on guns. I'm Rob Quist, and I approve this message to defend your rights but i'm sending this one to defend mine um, so that was a good example of basically how Democrats are trying to deal with these broader questions and, and the reality is that there is a small, small but significant possibility that things like Quist's candidacy as we move forward, John Ossoff's candidacy are going to force a lot of these debates back into the open, whether it's on guns, economic populism, abortion. These are all issues that Democrats will at some point have to deal with. But we saw the same thing in the, with the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party was so united beginning in 2008 and then, you know, through 2010 about, you know, disliking Obama, uh, you know, united against the repeal of Obamacare, what they saw as like an overreach of the big style government. And now we're seeing now they control everything. And we're seeing these fissures of like the Freedom Caucus and the more moderate Republicans and what the Senate Republicans think. And so I feel like, you know, the Democrats are now, uh, you know, you can only have Trump as the opposition figure that only takes you so far. I, th- I think essentially I mean, what we're exploring in these different times, and you saw it with Democrats at the beginning of Bill Clinton's presidency, you saw it with uh, Republicans uh, now, Democrats at the beginning of Obama's presidency. It doesn't seem like it's possible to win power in Congress without building coalitions within your party. And the, I mean, the question is whether the National Democratic Party wants to do that, basically. <laughs> well, I, I think it applies to both parties. And I think it, Trump and, and Sanders both revealed that I think there will be a a realignment of the political coalitions in the country. Um, I think the trade issue for Republicans, that was a major issue um, really since the emergence of the conservative movement that you're seeing a shift in in both parties. Um, There is a broad coalition of Democrats who oppose free trade and a a big portion of the Republican Party that opposes free trade. On foreign policy, the views of, um, I think, of both parties are very unclear. There's a a big portion of the Democratic Party that favors a more activist, muscular foreign policy. Same with the Republican Party. But in both parties, a coalition that that favors a more restrained foreign policy. So um, the two parties um, don't really fit together in any sort of coherent way, right? Right now, and I think Sanders and Trump revealed that. It, you know, I've heard people express it as um, open to the world, closed to the world. Um, really reflects um, what maybe new parties would look like more than the GOP and, and the Democrats uh, do right now. But I think that will take a long time to play out. We're, but we do see in Congress that these are pretty uncomfortable divisions, uh, the Republican Party and Democratic Party as they exist now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one reason that Democrats are actually, some people are very eager to have this conversation now as opposed to down the road is because they see a real danger in solidifying party policy as just being whatever Trump doesn't do. Because as we say over and over, Donald Trump is not just a doctrinaire Republican, whatever that might mean in today's era. Well, that's era. what happened to Republicans with Obama. Exactly. And, I, you know, I would say that um, 
had had Republicans lost the election, which very easily could have happened, they, they won incredibly narrowly, the conversation in the party would be, what is the Republican Party? What is the conservative movement? What principles do they stand for? What is their foreign policy doctrine? Um, what do they favor on domestic policy? Because Republicans won majorities um, in the House, in the Senate, and they won the presidency, nobody's having that conversation. But I've heard, you know, more, more than a few congressmen and senators say, that's a conversation they should be having. Um, but they're not just because of this uh, tremendously narrow victory because Trump won. This is why it's a great time to be a political reporter right now. There's so much to cover. There's a lot happening and uh, it's going to matter for a really long time. Thank you all for being here this week. Eliana, thank you very much. Thanks, Scott. Gabe, thank you. Anytime. Nancy, thank you as always. Oh, thank you. Lovely to be here. And as always, thank you to our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Rate us and write a written review. The more reviews and feedback we get, the higher we rise on the charts and the easier it is for more people to discover us. So please help us create Nerdcast Nation and subscribe, rate, and write a written review. And one more thing, we've created a survey to better get to know our listeners and create an even better show. So listeners, please take two minutes of your time, fill out a quick survey at politico.com slash podcast survey. That's politico.com slash podcast survey. And remember, please email us with any questions you have at nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you to our listeners, thank you to our panel, and thank you as always to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy, Nerdcast illustrator Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer Zach Montalaro. We'll talk to you again next week.